Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Friday the 12th of June, the Stowe Film Lounge, a pop-up cinema in Walthamstow, East London, teamed up with Walthamstow International Film Festival to show one of the best British horror movies of all time, The Wicker Man. Well, certainly, Britflix readers voted it number one in 2013 survey that we carried out. The veteran director, Robin Hardy, was announced as attending for a post-film Q&A, and not surprisingly, it was a sellout event. In the week leading up to the 12th of June, June the 7th to be precise, Christopher Lee died at the age of 93, making the screening of Wickerman and Q&A with Robin all the more poignant. For those that didn't know, Christopher Lee always said his character in The Wickerman was one of his favourite roles as an actor. Now, before the Q&A starts, a little context. Um, there was a video montage covering the sort of main headlines and sort of history of the Wicker Man, but that was a video, so it doesn't really work on a podcast, so I couldn't show that. Asking the questions is Walthamstow writer and director Marcus Shepherd, and alongside him is Paul Fletcher, one of the co-founders of Walthamstow International Film Festival. One final thing, there is some hiss on the uh, audio track, um, which is from the original recording, um, it's fairly consistent, so after a short while, you should be able to put it into the background, quite literally. My name's Stuart Wright, and I hope you enjoy this Britflix.com special of the Q&A with Robin Hardy. It was upon a So, Robin, anything that you saw there, not you go, long. that's wrong, not for long. Was there anything that you saw there initially in those clips, that, those images, that you thought, well, that's not right, that's not what happened? Because there's a lot of stories about the Wicker Man, isn't there? Yes, there are. Lots, lots of stories. Um, I think that the really important moments in the history of the Wicker Man was that once the film was finished, uh, and we'd made up the final cut we intended to distribute. Um, uh, a classic film biz um, conspiracy 
within the company, a sort of boardroom putsch uh, started because uh, a couple of the directors wanted to get their money out of British land and uh, they um, had to blame the managing director, who was a producer, Peter Peter Snell, uh, for making a disastrously bad film, The Wicker Man. <laughs> now, the other film that he'd made that year was Don't Look Now, and that had already been received extremely well, as it deserved to, uh, and so they couldn't do that to, the, to that. Um, and there was a famous, um, a famous interview with Michael Dealey, who actually r ran uh, the uh, the board, I think he was the chairman of the board. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, that's better. Yeah, um, and uh, he uh, had a visit from Christopher Lee, and Christopher Lee's w wife was with him, and uh, he made an extraordinary mistake, which won't altogether surprise you from what you know of Christopher Lee. Um, uh, he told Christopher Lee that he thought it was one of the worst films he'd ever seen and that it was undistributable. Uh, well, Christopher naturally, who thought it was a big change in his career and a very good film, um, uh, was very angry. But what he was particularly angry about was that Dealey just sat and didn't stand up for his wife. That was the ultimate sin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and those days may have gone, but it's a pity in some ways. Um, and so Christopher took the film to the um, Festival of Film Fantastique in Paris, where it won the Grand Prix. Uh, and that, from th that was the turning point, because uh, the, the critical uh, community knew that there was a film there mm. that at least the French uh, really thought was terrific. Yeah. And there must be something wrong going on at British land to condemn it. So that, that was a, the, the first really important moment. So he had to distribute it. He, he didn't want to distribute it. Dealey didn't. And uh, so he put it out as a second uh, feature to Don't Look Now. Well, now, second features had to be shorter than the main feature. Mm. Otherwise, the program was too long the cinemas. And so he just took a, 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 a pair of scissors to the film and he cut out the whole of that first night when we, when we see Christopher in the garden and the snails and all that. I particularly miss the snails, I must say, when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, made it a one-night film. So it, w it went down from 72 hours to 24 hours. Um, and that made it short enough. And that was all the British public ever saw until very recently, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, uh, probably only within the last decade uh, have there been uh, copies of the, of the shorter, uh, uh, of the longer film here. Uh, anyway, I... Uh, went back to America where I'd had most of my career and um, I met with a lot of students who had been given the project by their professor to um, distribute a film, raise the money, distribute it, advertise it, do all the business side of it. And because of the prize it had won, 
and rave reviews and variety and Hollywood Reporter and so on and so forth, they chose this film, which still hadn't been distributed in America. And they, they got together and they made a marvelous marketing plan and they went uh, to screenings with doctors and dentists, which are, by the way, the best way to raise money in the United States. Doctors and dentists <laughs> have all the money. And um, they uh, uh, put together the, the distribution plan. Uh, the America in those days had sub-distributors, and so various parts of the states by population had sub-distributors. They organized all that, students did. Would this be about 1976, one about then, or was it later yeah, than that? Yeah, no, about then. And the problem was, though, that I wouldn't put my name to it unless I'm allowed to restore it. So part of the money they raised had to give me enough money in order to do the restoration. Well, I uh, had to go to Mike Dealey, the, the uh, perpetrator, <laughs> uh, for... The, the negative, because that was the only way it could be distributed, as far as I could see. And he said, it's been lost. You can't have it. Um, and so uh, what we were forced to do was to find a very, very good print. We're a very famous American distributor of, on the whole, B pictures called Corman, Roger Corman, mm -hmm. uh, and a person who uh, created the careers of many great American directors like Bodanovich. Um, he had one print which we'd sent him and which his editor had kept in his screening room and it had only ever been projected once and so it was sort of in a virgin condition virtually and we had to use that internegative after internegative in order to get back to something and which would, would cut and maybe look like something on the screen. Well now that whole of that first night that you, you just saw was that. It was from a print uh, and we did it frame by frame. Mm -hmm. It was called the liquid gate process. Of course today we could do it you know, uh, with incredible ease. Well, incredible ease. It's still be quite difficult. Um, uh, with uh, you know, uh, computerized uh, techniques. So um, anyway, the resulting distribution, uh, which was supported, obviously, by the American press, Christopher came with me, and we went around the whole United States, all the big cities. And the great thing about the US, and I think it's, you can do it in this country too, um, is that every university and college has its own newspaper, has its own radio station, has its own television station. And they sit there waiting for a story. And boy, were we a story. Mm. So um, as a result, we were able to fill, this, mm. fill the various local cinemas and break house records. And, and uh, I used to look at Variety every week. And it would, Variety is written in an arcane language you wouldn't believe. But their fav my favorite word of theirs is boffo. You know, opened in Hartford, Connecticut, Boffo. <laughs> and then they gave the, the uh, um, earnings for that particular week. And so that was the um, third, really, mm -hmm. um, point of its, of its fame. Mm -hmm. The Americans really created its fame mm -hmm. in the teeth of <laughs> 
Mr. Levy. Anyway, I'm, rest his soul, I'm sure. He's no longer with us. Well, as, as you've re referred to Christopher Lee, it would be a bit remiss, not as if I'm after an anecdote, but with his recent passing and having watched that film, it's the first film you've seen him in since his passing, I guess, isn't it? And it yes. was his favourite movie. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you uh, suddenly came to mind with your experience of working with him, maybe on this film or when you were with him on that tour, that makes you think, not sums up the man, that sounds really crass, but that came to mind tonight particularly? Well, I mean, in a way, uh, he had already been typecast in the Hammer films as a sort of patrician, you know, figure, um, the sort of Lord of Misrule, um, uh, but in a rather, you know, ghoulish way, obviously. Um, and he was very good at that. Uh, and but he he got bored, as he said in many of these mm. uh, interviews, with doing the same thing in a thing. And because it had made money, people asked him to do it again and again and again. And when we offered him a film, it was really the first film he had, where he had a real part. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, Lord Samaral is based on real people who, um, who uh, uh, did experiments like that in the Western Isles. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the idea that someone as frankly glamorous as he, mm -hmm. uh, and with a sort of magus control mm -hmm. of everything that happened in other people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it was a, a very tempting uh, role for him to play. And also, he's, he's very funny in that. He's got great comic timing, hasn't he? Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Which I think is a sign of a great actor, because people were laughing a lot well, at the start well, of the film. Well, I have it? to p p pay a tribute to my... Uh, screenwriter in that film. I mean, Peter Tony Schaffer did a marvelous screenplay for that, mm. and uh, we we worked on it together. Um, we'd been partners with a, in a film company for 13 years before we made that film, so you know there was quite a lot of rapport between us about that sort of thing. And um, only Peter Euston, off of the people I've known or worked with, was funnier mm. than than Tony at his best. Mm. Was a great raconteur. I'm just going to hand the microphone to Paul here, but was there anyone tonight that hadn't seen the film before? And just a hand up. I know that Chris hadn't. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, that's amazing because a lot of people were laughing during the movie who know it because it is a joke in a way. But then the power of the third act, which, as you said, is coming across. So, Paul, over to you. Anything you want? Oh. Um, hi, I'm Paul. I, I represent E17 Films and the Wolfenstone Film Festival. I, I just, I just got a question about, not necessarily about this film, because I know it's part of a trilogy, and I think, Robin, that you're making the third one now. Would you like to say something about part three of the trilogy? Yes, I would. Um, why a trilogy, anyway? Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I never wanted to make a. Uh, um, a sequel or a prequel um, uh, although I'm not against them I think that you know uh, in the case of The Wicker Man uh, the sequel was clearly a disaster uh, and I have a pr private theory about that, why that was because Tony Schaffer who died about 10 years ago um, I'm convinced wherever he is, whether he's up or down. <laughs> Cursed that film. Uh. Because it's full of uh, the people who made it. were Perfectly talented people who'd done 
perfectly talented, good things. And yet in that case, they completely bombed. And, and so uh, a certain amount of schadenfreude watching that. But um, uh, I think that the, um, the real problem um, with making sequels is, sorry, real problem with making sequels is that um, you have to add a whole series of really important, wonderful new ingredients. And my favorite uh, remake is the Thomas Crown Affair. Thomas Crown Affair was wonderful the first time, but the second time they added the art direction, which was so beautiful and exciting, and the music uh, as well. Uh, and of course, I fell immediately in love with Miss Russo, mm -hmm. as I think most, most men of my age did, <laughs> and uh, 40 or 50 at that time. Uh, uh, I think her husband did as well, apparently. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think that it had to be as cursed. It, it ha didn't have to do with that lack of talent. It just, you know, so do you think Anthony Schoeffer has let you off on Wrath of the Gods then? He's going to give you a Well, I, I have to feel nervous about that. But uh, that, that's not a sequel. No, of course. And nor was The Wicker Tree. Uh, what, what I'm interested in this trilogy is I think that in The Wicker Man, and I'd be interested if, if anyone in the audience disagrees with this, and you may, I think one of the important ingredients in it, and one of the things that the people who made the remake completely missed, is that it does use humor mm -hmm. to affect. Mm -hmm. And some of the humor is made to actually advancing the plot. Mm -hmm. And it does use music and the lyrics as well, mm. advance the plot. And it does use a uh, mystery of the kind that is you know, embodied in the hair. Mm -hmm. And it advances the plot. And I think that is a thing that you can do in a film, a horror film, if it is a horror film, and not everyone would think it was, uh, and save the horror for the end mm -hmm. uh, when you've built up all these sleight of hand red herrings, and then go for the, go for the whammy at the end, you know, which I think this film does quite successfully. Um, so I tried to do that in the second film. I think I was too. Uh, perhaps too low-key at the end of that. Um, for me, it was a very, um, I, I, I won't bore you with telling you more about that, but it was not uh, a strong enough um, aid to the imagination at the end. Uh, for me, it was absolutely ghastly at the end. Uh, I mean, ghastly in the sense that it really was frightening. Um, and in this new film, um, which also uh, ends with a great burning. Um, I hope that we've succeeded with those ingredients of comedy and, and um, uh, little sex and music-driven plot. I hope we've succeeded in doing that in the script. What I now have to do is to <laughs> make the damn thing. <laughs> Well, I was, I was thinking tonight, when I, when I met you at the station, you'd never been to Walthamstow before, have you? No. So I felt, I felt a bit like, well, let's, let's welcome him. 
I felt a bit like we were Lord Summerall inviting you up to the island a little bit, actually. <laughs> I was beginning to wonder on that walk. <laughs> so if we can all... If we can all put our animal masks on now, we can all turn and face him. Um, in that little package that I cut to be an aid this evening, and by all means feel free to ask questions in a second about what you want to ask about, but what I'm really interested in is that, like the Shirley Jackson lottery story, or The Vanishing, the Dutch film, it's got a great ending, and you said that Anthony Sheffer liked games, and the whole film works as a joke in reverse, which is brilliant. You know the ending, if you know the ending, and it has that amazing punch, and I don't... I don't think personally there's a more brilliant ending to any movie in this country that's been made. And I think it's a, it's a testimony to you that if you didn't make any more movies, you are, but you made The Wicker Man, you could get that T-shirt done. <laughs> and you could say to anyone, I made The Wicker Man. And that is such a closing statement from anybody. So I just think props to you for that film 100% because it's a beautifully shot film. It's beautifully tone managed. And what I'd also say as well as a... The casting of the extras is beautiful, and the uh, and the elegance of the camera work. It may have been Harry, it may have been you, but I think that, that's a remarkable first feature and a feature to have done. So I'm I'm so happy that we've all seen it together. Are, are there any questions we can throw out to the audience that want to ask anything? So at the back, not so loud. I, I I can repeat it. So the question is, I mean, you had an experience in advertising in the 60s, a sort of Mad Men period when there was a lot of money to make, and it shows it's very quick filming in that sense. Mm. What were your influences for the film as you were, before you made the film, and as you made the film? Were there any influences that came to mind, other directors? Well, I was educated as, a, as an artist, and so um, uh, I was interested in making the film uh, partly because I, I thought there was no reason why horror films... Uh, which were very much in vogue then, and we were trying to uh, turn the tables on Hammer a bit, shouldn't be beautiful. And I like to think the film is beautiful, you know, scene after scene after scene. And that was a great attraction of, of doing it for me as, as, an, as an art, as a you know, painter and drawer. Um, but uh, also uh, my um, uh, other avocation is as a writer. I mean, I write novels. Um, and um, so I did most of the research with, for, for that film, uh, and, but Tony and I really invented the, the script mm -hmm. together, and he wrote that wonderful dialogue for it. I mean, the scene between I, in Christopher and, and uh, the policeman um, is, is wonderfully funny in the best sense, I think. I mean, it's wonderfully witty, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the Holy Ghost. <laughs> line is, is really, you know, I think, uh, and we all thought at the time, uh, is, is rather special. Um, also, I think uh, Tony had been, did many other things, but I, he only really wrote one really successful play, uh, which was Sleuth. Uh, and Sleuth, you, you referred to games. Mm -hmm. uh, Sleuth, of course, is a game. Uh, and uh, Tony and I, in the 13 years that we worked together, uh, I think we were the most successful commercials company almost worldwide. We had offices in Frankfurt, Milan, Paris, New York, London. Uh, and it was a license to print money making commercials in those days. It was cost plus 40%. Mm -hmm. Think of a business which is cost plus 40%. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it is wow. Uh, but tax was over 90%. 
Well, you know, I mean... Uh, not wow. No. I mean, you could be spent hundreds of thousands a year and end up with 5,000. Wow. You know, it, 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 Mr. Wilson was then uh, in, in power. Uh, anyway, uh, it, it, all those influences, uh, advertising uh, is a fascinating business if you have the latitude to really let your um, uh, imagination roam. Mm -hmm. uh, and because each problem is different. You know, you have to make a Guinness commercial or a Schweppes commercial or a Chevrolet commercial or, you know, uh, a British Airways commercial. Mm -hmm. The problem is all different. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful proving and ground for your, for your mind when it comes to making mm -hmm. uh, features. Um, it's just... Uh, is rather more profitable than making features. Mm -hmm. As you as you watch the film tonight, as you've mentioned many times, do you forget the brutal shooting elements of what happened? And that was a tough day. I mean, because it's it's quite a traumatic shoot. I mean, it happened very quickly, didn't it? It was put into production partly because of the unions they gathered to get the film going. It was shot in the in the winter. As you were directing the film, and there were the the many egos around you, of course your own ego, which is included in it. Did you find it an enjoyable experience making that film? Most of the time, yes. Um, I, I had a very good crew. Harry Waxman and I did not get on. Mm. Partly because Harry Waxman was, um, I think he was an Orthodox Jew. And he was quite religious. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, th he didn't like the idea of our being sacrilegious about Christianity. I mean, his, his sense of religion and the properness of religion extended to that. Mm -hmm. So I would constantly have to say, well, uh, this is a pagan society and it stands against this particular aspect of Christianity. Mm -hmm. and, and that chess game between the two uh, is quite legitimate for the Christians as it is for the pagans. Mm. Um, uh, but he was never very happy with that. But he was hard because he was absolutely brilliant at special effects. Mm -hmm. What we not, would now do with CGI, with blue background and all that, um, he could do in all sorts of um, ways that we use then. I won't you know, bore you with the various techniques, but he was very good at all of them. And that was, that was for the bonfire sequence mainly, that they were worried it wasn't going to work, was that right? That's right. Uh, and what he did was, of course, it wasn't a trick. I mean, he was hard to do that sequence with tricks. And on the night, or on the day, almost night, he put the camera in the right place, exactly the right place, and he was, we were all incredibly lucky. Uh, and when the wicker man burnt, mm. it collapsed. Well, that we influenced at least. And it collapsed right into the path to the sun. Mm. I mean, it would have taken an enormous amount of effort. It could, be, it could have been done, and he would have been able to do it. Mm. But he did it just by putting the camera in the right place. Uh, and the sun in the right place. The sun was in the right place at the right time. <laughs> Well, there's that expression, isn't it, with films that you need the luck. And I think in the filming, you had, you had the luck of the filming. It was from the shot sense. in November, December, from April, May. Uh, and it shouldn't have worked, really, no, should it? No, it shouldn't. I mean, those orchards you saw, mm -hmm. um, I shot in South Africa. Yeah. 
And you also did some filming in David Hemming's garden in Kent, that's yes, right, isn't it? Yes, How yeah. did that come about? Was, was David Hemmings ever going to play the Howie role? Yes, he was. But he just wasn't available when we, when we came to, to make the film. You know, that's always the way you have an actor you want, or an actress you want to use. And he or she is, is, is taken just when you have to go, because the money is there and everything else is there. Uh, I mean, you know, the extent to which this business revolves around money is, mm. you know, obviously extraordinarily important. And also he had money because of Hemdale and he had the garden. You filmed in the garden. So that footage is in the film. Is That's his garden in Kent. It was it? called something like Hush House Manor. Mm. Hush House Manor. And it was filled with, um, as I remember it, very good fakes of famous expressionists. So you looked around and there was, you know, a uh, a Picasso or a Monet or whatever, yeah. but it wasn't. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, it, he wasn't pretending it was. It was, you know, just a special collection of fakes. And uh, and the footage in the garden ends up in the film, doesn't it? So you filmed in his garden in Kent, and you yes. used that as publicity. And then when you came to, sorry, well, as as pre-filming. Well, material. I went down to, uh, to to visit him when we were thinking of working together, and I saw this wonderful phallus in the garden, and couldn't resist it. <laughs> I mean, where would you find such a thing? <laughs> and you won't hear that said very often in Walthamstone on a Friday night, will you? <laughs> well, uh, and, and all, uh, also um, promoting this nice um, pregnant ladies to go touching the trees, because mm -hmm. it was all there, that moment. Mm -hmm. But that's the magic of the film, as, as we all probably notice when you see it on, on the screen, is that it's a very elegant, well-composed, well-shot film, and many first features, even now, that they're overcut, and that isn't. That's a very, I mean, it is a commercial director's movie. He's got the shot, we've got it. And I think that's a testimony again to the longevity of the film, that the symbols are in there. But it's very beautifully put together. Well, the commercials are very demanding. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's the five finger exercises, if you like, of the feature business. Mm. Um, can you explain that sort of Well, I mean, if, if commercials are for the most part, uh, either 30 seconds or a minute long, which is surprisingly long, actually, if you r really get down to it, putting the images together. And they, um, uh, they have to tell their story in that short time. Well, feature films are full of episodes. For instance, mm -hmm. take, take the sequence with the frog, which actually turned out to be a toad. My prop man told me afterwards that it was a toad. <laughs> of course, it's supposed to be a frog in your throat. You know. <laughs> However, we haven't told anyone that because I've told you. <laughs> Keep it to yourself, sir. <laughs> um, and that was a short the, sequence, as you said, that well, sold I, itself. I mean, that was, was uh, probably no longer than 30 seconds, mm -hmm. the whole thing. Um, well, doing those quite often in your film mm -hmm. are like putting, you know, the right kind of currents in the bun. Yeah. I think it is a perfect argument for a good commercial director can make a feature film, you know? Um, I, I just, um, for me, in the film, I, I find the opening sequence when he's flying across the islands really beautiful. I find the, the scene of the, uh, the, is it the Willow song with mm. Britt Eklund, that's so sexually charged. Mm -hmm. And then the final scene of the Wicker Man burning, brilliant. But I, I find Edward Woodward's acting really riveting and really good to watch. Was he good to work with? Uh, Edward, Edward, dear Christopher, 
Yeah. Um, Let's have a round of applause to Edward Woodward, of course. We've done everything. We don't want Anthony Sheffer coming off us, do we? We want to make sure that we're happy. Well, you see, um, uh, there are actors. Um, I don't know if you ever see, saw a film called The Man Who Will Be King. Yep. Uh, wonderful film with uh, um, Sean Connery, Sean Connery, and Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Which John Huston? Well, um, I remember. Um, I think they both had the same agent, which quite often happens in films, um, because that's how the money is put together. Um, and uh, the agent said to me, "The interesting thing about those two is that Connery is not by any means the greater actor." But you can't help looking at him when the two of them are on the screen together. There's a very good sequence in The Wicker Man, which is, uh, although I, sp I think perhaps uh, in, in sheer acting power, um, you could say that Edward was the greater actor, but he was never a film star. And Christopher was every inch of a film star. And you couldn't help, when you had those two on the screen together, you couldn't help looking at Christopher. Yes. Well, that's so, why we show those clips of Christopher. He's an iconic face. Yes, yes, he is, yes. I mean, he's a perfectly good actor. I'm not saying he wasn't a very good actor. But uh, the reason people hired him and used him in films was because he had this sort of stellar power with his face, but, and particularly with his voice. Well, that, that very first uh, Dracula film with Terence Fisher, when he walks out, you don't realise what a tremendously powerful move that is from an actor at that time in what was a very parochial cinema. And I think your film has the power of symbols. We talked a bit earlier on about the final image of the film, which you're now talking about with the wrath of the gods. And I wonder at the moment in the culture we live in where so much is commodified, whether the power of the Wicker Man grows because symbols begin to speak to us in a different way now because we're so information-led. Is there something that you feel with that film particularly? There are so many symbols in there which are accurate and you looked at the Golden Bough. What's your feeling now about working in cinema using those, those ancient symbols? Well, I think they're always useful. I mean, after all, way, 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 way back, someone decided to call Monday the Moon Day or the Moon Day Monday. They decided for the same thing with Sunday. They were talking about gods, you know, the whole, the whole of the week, most of the months. And they've never gone away. You know, they've been useful, uh, useful labels uh, for the basic time measures of our lives. And we never think about it. Uh, so uh, the answer, I think, is that that is a perpetual mm. Uh, fact and probably always will be, and we keep on adding to them. You know, uh, um, we keep on. Uh, you know, it's funny, for instance, that now that we're all into computers, a whole new language, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, which runs parallel to English or French or German or whatever, um, uh, has just become. It just arrived overnight, and it goes on arriving every day, as far as I'm concerned. You know. Uh, um, we, we talked a bit about Abel Ganso on silent movies, and mm. yours is a very visual film. And, and yesterday, when I was cutting the sequence, one of my kids looked over the shoulder, and I kept it hidden from them. And they saw the Wicker Man image. Mm. What's that? Mm. 
And I think when I was a kid, I thought it was called The Wicked Man for a long time. <laughs> because back in the 70s, there was no video, so you missed it. And I was thinking with the faceless quality of The Wicked Man, was that... I know that there's, there's some discussion about how the, it came to be, but it's such an iconic, faceless image, isn't it? With a th I think it's much better when it is faceless. I mean, you, I think he was... For, I've, I've, forgotten, but I've seen it very recently, that uh, 18th century drawing, yeah. which does have a face. About the Druids, yeah. Yes. And, and I, th I think that it's faceless makes it more godlike, mm. or something of the gods. The animals. I you know, I like the animals inside as well. Yeah. The cows and the geese and inside the wicker man. And is it true that the goat was peeing on Edward Woodward and you? Is that true? And me, yes. Well, actually, you would hardly blame the goat. <laughs> I'd blame you. The, the man was on fire. <laughs> yes, it had to be an Anglican church. And there are very few in Scotland. I had a problem with that. Yeah. And, and I had to play the priest. <laughs> that, that figure standing there in a cassock is me. My, my, friend, my, my friend on my left um, uh, put his finger on it in the presentation he made. Uh, there's a man called Fraser, the Golden Bough. The Golden Bough is the longest detective story you can ever endure. It's 15 volumes, I think. And that was the abridged one we saw. So you read 15, didn't you? Yes, I read the whole thing. Um, but fortunately, I was, in, I was ill in hospital, and it was a marvelous distraction because we were preparing for the film. Um, and that detective story goes back and back and back through all our beliefs and our myths and our fairy stories. Mm -hmm until you get right to the almost, if you can find it, the original myth fairy story that we must have sat round a campfire and, and told each other and believed. Uh, very interestingly, Apocalypse Now, if you've seen that film, um, what uh, Coppola does there is he goes back, apart from going up at the Mekong all the time, he. He goes back and back and back until finally uh, he comes to somebody who actually figures in the Golden Bough, which is the knight who defends the, the Golden Bough, the, 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 the final, um, uh, the final um, habitation of the god. Uh, and it is, of course, Brando who plays that role. And they che Coppola cheats there because you act he actually shows you, like I'm showing you now, <laughs> the cover of the book, The, um, the Golden Bar, mm -hmm. to tell you how clever he's been and mm -hmm. he's actually... <laughs> that's what it's all been about. Uh, well, we certainly haven't done that, but wh what we've done is we've mined The Golden Bar for all those symbols for the game which so attracted Tony Schaffer, mm. who in his play Sleuth uh, had a wonderful game between two men. Uh, in, in our business lives, um, in all those years that he, he and I worked together, we constantly played games with each other. And uh, the games were sometimes cruel, sometimes funny. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I'd been filming in Rome, and I was exhausted, and my wife was with me. And I called him up in London, and I said, I need to go somewhere and really rest and relax. 
And he said, oh, I know, just the place. I'll call you back tomorrow. He called back and he gave me the place, which was in Sicily. So I drove the whole length of Italy from Rome to Sicily. I got to the place that he recommended as being the perfect place for us to have a rest, drove up the drive, and I could hear, as I drove up the drive, a German, it turned out to be a German regiment having a reunion, an, an SS regiment, and they were going, hoch, 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 with, with, with steins of beer. And so I turned round and drove back to Rome. <laughs> and that was to, at least two points to him. Mm. My wife wasn't too pleased about that game. Um, and, and then I, I had a wonderful repast for that. And this goes to the heart of the Wicker Man in a way. My repast was, we were shooting, uh, all this is commercials, we were shooting commercials in the coffee plantation mountains of Puerto Rico in the Caribbean, and uh, uh, he was coming down from San Juan. I'd sent a jeep for him, and from the Hacienda's terrace, I could see his jeep arriving, and I knew he was rather short-sighted. I also knew that he'd never been on a horse in his life. He was you know, raised in a Hampstead, which is not horse country. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I had a mule there for him with a local person who spoke no English. And he couldn't see that we were just up the path on the terrace with our gins and tonics and rums and things. And so he was forced to get on the mule. And for the next two or three hours, we watched the Puerto Rican gentleman <laughs> leading him around all the hills <laughs> with this very rebellious mule. <laughs> When he was finally let off by the gates, and we walked down with a drink for him, and he could see what had actually happened, he wasn't pleased. <laughs> I mean, that was probably two votes, two, two marks for me. But we did this all the time. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. No, it certainly wasn't my plan. Just to say that Brit was dubbed and also she was re-bottomed as well, wasn't she? No, well, that was the only, the only reason why we shot that. There's only one cut in there of, of somebody else's bottom. Um, is, is because, uh, you know, I, I believe if you're going to do a nude scene with anyone, you have to show them what they're going to see through the... So the double goes all the way around, and the angles, and the, and the person, in Brit, Brit's case, saw exactly what we were going to see of her. And she said, you can't shoot my ass because it's like a ski slope. <laughs> and so we've, all the rest of the, of the choreography is pretty much of her front or her side, and a very nice front and side she has. But I had to have her turn around, particularly when she was hammering on the door. Um, so uh, uh, I couldn't, uh, she wouldn't do that. So we went down to Glasgow and we went round all the strip clubs until we found somebody who had <laughs> a, a, a back which is a sort of very similitude of of a Brit, and and she came out. And the, and the owner of the club, uh, who let her go, 
said, I'm, I hope you get her back tomorrow because it's all very soon. She's my absolute, she's my best stripper. Um, and so we honestly said, I think, that we would get her back as soon as possible. To my horror, two weeks later, she was still with the crew. <laughs> How about her voice? Was it Brit's voice? As far as I was said, it was Brit's voice. Hmm. <laughs> There's a question over there, sorry? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, earlier you talked about um, Harry's reaction to the religious element of it, and I wonder what, what audiences like at the time, especially in America, were there more were there much more religious than us? Well, that, that, that is actually, in a way, quite strange. I was saying to you just a moment ago that the, um, uh, we had prayer breakfasts as we were travelling through the South. You'd arrive in a town where we're going to open the picture, and then there will be a, a, a prayer breakfast, which is a thing unknown, I think, in this country, but in America quite common. And, and the, um, the Catholic priest and the, the Baptist minister and so on uh, uh, come, and you show them the film, and, and if they want to denounce it from the pulpit, they can. In this case, they thought it was terrific because it was the best, they felt, film representation of resurrection. Mm. In fact, very few films deal with resurrection, but we did very... Remember those scenes of, of Christopher and, and uh, Howie, Howie sort of looking over his shoulder and shouting about what he believed. You know, that he, um, they were thrilled with that, and they, they, it sort of made them forget about the nudity and that sort of thing. And in, and in 1974, was it a blow for you when it wasn't, it didn't ignite with the audiences? I mean, I mean it must have been difficult. In this country, you mean? Yes, yeah, so when it was shown here, with the reaction. Well, no, because I mean, half the film had been cut out of it. Mm -hmm. I'd have been surprised if, if it had, really. Um, so, so once the cutting had happened, you almost expected it to be that situation, you felt? It's still got very good reviews here. Mm. It's just that it was deliberately downloaded to a B movie, a, a, a B -movie by, by the management. Mm. And so once uh, managements, because the, 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 the film library was sold on and on between companies, mm. realized that it was making uh, plenty of, of money in the States because it was on television all the time. You know? yeah. Do you think it's possible to make a film as unique as that now, bearing in mind we're so aware of other films? Um, well, I think it is. Uh, I, th I really think it is. And that's why I wanted to make two more, in order to emphasize uh, that I really like that genre. I like to be able to throw comedy in. I like to be able to, you know, put bits of mystery in and a, a little peck of sex. <laughs> you know, because that's what life is about. I mean, that's what our lives are like. Um, uh, if you write a horror film which is just horror, 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 horror all the way through, it's pretty boring. Because um, people aren't like that. It is its own genre. I mean, that is, uh, to be frank with you, that's what I'm trying to, to establish. And, uh, and in this new film, uh, very much so. And with The Wrath of the Gods, you're, you're, you're now doing a crowdfunding campaign, is that right? You started filming that to raise money for that project? Yes. Uh, well, I'm about to do it. We're, at the hope, we're hoping to launch the crowdfunding um, thing uh, on uh, the 1st of of July. How much do you need? Um, can we say that here? Yes, <laughs> you can, you can. 
I will quickly explain. Is anyone who doesn't know about crowdfunding? funding? We, we're aware of crowdfunding here, aren't we? Yeah, we know crowdfunding yet. You don't know about funding. We do know crowdfunding yet. We're aware of it. Well, the thing about crowdfunding is that there are many approaches. I mean, there's Indiegogo, Indiegogo and there's um, Kickstarter and various others. Um, the uh, one we're using is, is uh, Indiegogo, uh, which actually, funny enough, is it's backed by Branson, Richard Branson. Uh, and it's a uh, San Francisco company. Uh, and it is, after all, just another way of producing venture capital. Um, and the, uh, the campaign that we are doing, uh, in effect, encourages people in return for gifts. For instance, um, there's a new edition of my book of The Wicker Man. Uh, is one of the gifts. And people get that and it's signed and all that sort of thing. And then the, the special DVDs, you know, special posters, all of those. People get those in return for quite small amounts of money. We're talking about 20 pounds or 30 pounds or something like that. Um, and uh, that, that is all they get. They get the object. And if they want to do this for twenty pounds or thirty pounds, and get a regular report from the from the set and pictures of the stars and all those things, we provide that. What we don't provide are shares. Mm. So um, we are we are uh, we end up at that point of the of the financing with considerable freedom to um, change script and things like that if we feel we need to because we're in control of the money. So that's the financial side of it, if you like. Um, what we have to do is to uh, make a, a good fist of explaining why we're making the film, what is special about it, uh, and why the particular tranche of money. Now, in my case, um, the crowdfunding we're about to do uh, is to raise the money for a number of special things. A big factor in my film is, is steampunk. And steampunk, uh, in many cases, needs to be made. Steampunk doesn't have steam at the moment. What it has is it makes Victorian objects, 19th century objects, out of artifacts and inventions which are completely contemporary to today. It's, it's retro in that respect. And it's a very popular art form, uh, particularly in the United States and France. And here, there was a huge, ex very good exhibition in Oxford of it recently. Anyway, that I need to raise money to build a Viking ship, which is not part of a normal budget. Uh, I need, uh, I need uh, money for the uh, steampunk itself to convert various objects um, into things which actually work on steam, like a helicopter, like a motorbike. Uh, and that's a lot of work, and that's a lot of investment, but it's not part of a normal film budget. Do you see what I mean? And so uh, I'm raising initially about 300,000 for that, um, for those objects and so on. Uh, Indiegogo 
uh, has a system whereby uh, in September, in the fall, I can raise another lot of money for two of my stars. I've got the film cast pretty much, but I do need two fairly major stars. Can you say who they are? Is that not possible? Yeah. Or is that not a question to answer? Yeah, it's not a question. Okay. I have to deal with the agents. Sure, I understand. <laughs> no, that's not, not possible, unfortunately. But um, I've got I've got people that I've used before. Uh, I've got people. I've even got an actress uh, who's now a lady of a certain age, uh, as the French say, which is say, saying I like actually. Uh, <laughs> um, and the little girl who had the the beetle that went round and round, Daisy. Yeah. Daisy uh, is now a woman of sixty. And and uh, she's a very good actress. I used her in my last film, and I'm going to use her again in another role. So I was going to say, if any Walthamstow entrepreneurs look at the flyer, I mean, we were saying earlier that you could make a beer called Wrath of the Gods, couldn't we? <laughs> we, we could do a Wicker Man Ale, and Robin's contactable via this. Um, one question more from the audience before we probably finish the seconds at, at the front there, sorry. Yeah, just saying, um, as a mature filmmaker, do you have any criticisms of this younger film? Are you suggesting I'm not the first flush of my youth? <laughs> On the contrary, I'm saying you are obviously at the height of your powers now. And when you made this film as a young man, yes. is there anything you're is there anything you would change now? Michael Dealey. I would alter him considerably, yes. Um, no, I, I I think what I would what I would do is um, change now, I'm talking about the British, or the French, or countries which have minor film industries, which we do here, really. Um, and uh, not, uh, not go for financing which um, depends on tax, uh, and where people are investing in a project simply because they want you know, to be free of tax on that particular sum of money and five years' time, that sort of thing. I think that's very harmful. And in this country, we have scads of films sitting on, on you know, uh, shelves which will never be seen, and not necessarily because they're not worth seeing, but simply because they, the people who invested them don't even really care. Pinewood is almost, well, I, must, I mustn't say that. But do you, do you have anything, <laughs> any criticisms of, do you look at something and say, oh, I wish I'd done that differently? Is there a scene you'd like to reshoot now? <clears throat> it can be perfectly contemporary. It is a very, very good film. Uh, actually, in my case, um, I, I did a musical in the theatre in the 80s, and I wish I'd done it differently. Um, uh, but I'm a very Anglo-American person, and I, I would have done it as an American musical rather than a British musical. Um, I think the Americans are better at musicals than we are on the whole. And I think the record shows that that's, that that's true. Uh, and I would have used more of their talent in that musical uh, if I'd had a chance to. That's a, I haven't had that experience with the film. What about with The Wicker Man? Was The Wicker Man, was there any scenes in the film that you look at now and think... Maybe I could change that a little bit. I've already cut them out. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. is a very, a very good answer. One question I'd like to run by is, the, in the complete angler, the pub, 
When you were telling the story, is it true that George Sanders overheard and joined in the conversation, or is that just a little... No, no, that's true. So what was the... Because, I mean, the, 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 the lightning moment of the story when you've got it, which is, what, which is what we watched, the whole thing, it's a great story. When it came to life, was that the night in the pub you first shared it with you? No, no, yes. What, what, what happened was I used to have a, an island at Maidenhead um, um, called Belters Lock Island. It wasn't my... I mean, the, obviously, it was the locks, lock, locks island, but the other end of the island we had a house. So we had the weir on one side and the river on the other and uh, we had to row over every morning to collect our groceries from the you know, the other bank. Uh, and Tony and I uh, spent a long weekend there uh, inventing the story of the Wicker Man. But very much with the game. Mm -hmm. You know, with his game mind, because he's, he was a much more into games than me in spite of their silly games we played with each other. And so out of that, we had exactly what we thought was the right plot. And our long-suffering wives, we took to dinner to tell them the story. And we went to Monkey Island, which is, mm -hmm. as you know, uh, further down river, up, up river, I suppose it is. No, down river. Um, and we tell them the story. And the person sitting next to us at the next table was George Sanders. Who was the voice of Sher Khan and lots of movies, you know the actor yes, from... Yes, Oh, wonderful. Uh, uh, and did he join in the conversation that sounded yeah, wonderful? What was well, sort of, yes, yeah, sort of. Any, any final questions before we wrap up with Robin's time? Are you looking at alternative ways of distribution for this project? No. No. no I, well, having said that, um, uh, I think that... I think the cinema is still alive and well. So I wouldn't make a film just for other media, if you know what I mean. Um, and since my budget is going to be eventually about six million, mm. I couldn't afford to, because uh, I would never recoup. Um, but um, I, I, I think uh, I think the, the whole distribution business for books, for music, for films, are all going in a sort of flux at the moment, you would perhaps agree. And uh, films particularly um, have now to be distributable uh, in, you know, half a dozen different media if, if they're going to uh, be successful financially. Um, I also think that um, we have to be uh, very attentive to foreign markets to make films that that um, other countries will want to see. Yeah. I mean, we're incredibly lucky that we have the English language, mm -hmm. of course, which is a vast advantage. But it's interesting to look at the Scandinavians, at the Danes and the Swedes, mm -hmm. who are now coming on strong with these uh, mini-series of theirs. And uh, people no longer mind subtitles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're confident. Yeah. And, and, and they, those series are, are wonderfully successful and deservedly so. So I think we should do more of that. So a, a final question about the, Christopher Lee and the film. What's your favourite memory of working with him on The Wicker Man? And is there a favourite memory that comes to mind, a, a particular moment when you work with him that you think watching the film tonight, you remember that section? Christopher was a, a great raconteur. Um, but when he told a story, he could go on and on and on. <laughs> And there was a journalist who was haunting us when we were making The Wicker Man. Uh, and she constantly wanted to get a 
Why, why wouldn't she? It was her job. Uh, an interview with uh, the great man, and um, I was finding her a bit of a pain um, because you know she was constantly coming to me to, for, for help in this, and I couldn't do I couldn't do anything about it. Uh, and so uh, finally, um, he was in his Winnebago. He had a rather splendid Winnebago, uh, and I said. Um, I've arranged for you to go in, uh, but you must, uh, I think, do one thing. When you get in there, tell him that you really want to hear the story of his life. <laughs> well, thank you for a, for a fitting tribute to this week and for us a, a wonderful evening. And again, I'm sure we can all agree that's a, a remarkable film. And get the T-shirt that said, I made the Wicker Man. And people will will always know that. It's uh, wonderful. And good luck with, with Wrath of the Gods. Everyone check out the information. And a big round of applause to Robin, to Lisa and Paul and Nick. And thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. I, I hope... I hope that you will tell your... I hope that you will tell your friends about the Wrath of the Gods. And we hope to launch on the 1st of July. And so it will... You know, it's various aspects on the net and Twitter and Facebook and all that. Um, about which I am only just learning. <laughs> Thank you, Robin, again. Thank you very much. It was upon a llama's night. I do hope you enjoyed that uh, hook-up there with the Stowe Film Lounge and Walthamstow International Film Festival. There are links in the podcast notes to both those, so you can check out for those of you living in East London or nearby to Walthamstow, um, listings for both the Stowe Film Lounge and uh, events and the like run by Walthamstow International Film Festival. Um, and there'll be links to uh, Robin's crowdfunding campaign for Wrath of the Gods. Good luck with that, Robin. And uh, I'll see you, or be talking to you next week on a usual BritFlix.com podcast. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to Ripflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.